So the year is 1790. The United States is barely a teenager. And in that year, it's facing two critical issues. One, what sort of fiscal policy will it embrace? And two, where shall the seat of its government be located? Folks in the government are squaring off. We're not shocked. Alexander Hamilton, he wants to assume all of the state's debts in order to build a credit line with foreign governments. Madison, James Madison, uh, doesn't really like the idea of national intervention in that way. But at the same time, James Madison wants the seat of government to be somewhere on the Potomac River, whereas Alexander Hamilton would like it to be further north. So we're at an impasse. What happens? Thomas Jefferson calls for them to come over for a dinner, to sit in an intimate, convivial way to talk things out. And at the end of that dinner, of which we have very few details, a compromise had been struck. Madison agrees to Hamilton's wish that the government would assume state debts. Hamilton agrees to Madison's wish that the seat of government would be on the Potomac River, and soon it would be called Washington, D.C., there on the Potomac River. And in that day, that dinner, with this consequential outcome, came to be known as the 1790 Dinner Compromise. All over the course of a meal. We're in a series in this new year in which we're asking ourselves, what does it mean in Revelation 21 when it says of Jesus that he's making all things new? Last week we considered how he has come to introduce a new hope. But this week we're going to consider something else that is new. And that something new came across in a meal. That 1790 dinner compromise is uh, uh, affectionately known as from the song in Hamilton, The Room Where It Happened. The night that we're going to speak of, the night where Jesus is betrayed, in that room something happened where something new came forth. Look, you've been at at least two kinds of meals in your time. Uh, there's at least one meal where they were all out to impress you with what they could do with the skills that they could represent and the, the pairings between drink and food and all that. And they were all out to show you just how brilliant they were. And then there are other meals where you came away from them believing that what they were most interested in was knowing that you're loved. Now those two things aren't always mutually exclusive, but if you look closer at any given meal, sometimes you can tell what the host is most out to magnify themselves, or their guests. Jesus is about to serve his disciples a meal on the night he's betrayed. And in that meal, he's going to communicate one thing to them profoundly. His love. In gathering them to it. In sharing them with it. And in explaining its point. He's going to convey to them just how profound is his love for them. And what we want to consider the way he's brought something forth new. We're going to consider his love in four ways. The essence of it, the depth of it, the goal of it, but then maybe most importantly, how do you experience it? If we understand its essence, its depth, and its goal, how do we experience that? We're in Luke chapter 22. Our central text for today comes from Luke 22. And when the hour came, he reclined at table and the apostles with him. And he said to them, I have earnestly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. For I tell you, I will not eat it until it is fulfilled in the kingdom of God. 
And he took a cup, and when he had given thanks, he said, Take this and divide it among yourselves. For I tell you that from now on I will not drink of the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God comes. And he took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and gave it to them, saying, This is my body, which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And likewise, the cup, after they had eaten, saying, This cup that is poured out for you is the new covenant in my blood. This is the word of the Lord. So here at this beautiful meal at the beginning of a fateful night, the first thing we learn about Jesus's love for them, for us, is its nature, its essence. Maybe you call it a structure to it, a certain way in which it operates. When you and I think about love, we, we tend to associate it with an affection, which sometimes overlaps with the idea of emotion. And and surely love is not without affections and is often intertwined with emotions. But what we learn about the nature of love here in particular is that it has a promise attached to it. That the nature of his love is in the form of a promise. And to use a biblical word for that, what we're talking about is that love comes in the form of a covenant. Now, I'm taking the way this moment unfolds a little bit out of order. Because after Jesus breaks the bread, he then says to them, this cup is the covenant in my blood. The covenant. Now, as soon as he uses that word, he is tapping deep into the superstructure of the biblical world. Uh, covenants uh, are the organizing principle by which you can understand all of Scripture because you find them so often because they're all a reflection about the way in which God chooses to relate to his people through the way of a promise. And so there are the, the covenant with Noah, the covenant with Abraham, the covenant with Moses, the covenant with David. But the covenant that Jesus has most in mind here when he's invoking the idea that this is the covenant in his blood is the covenant that you heard in our Old Testament reading. The one from the prophet Jeremiah when Israel and Judah are in exile in a foreign land. And you heard, if you were listening closely, four characteristics of that covenant. That Whereas in an earlier time during Moses, the law would have come to them as an external influence. Now Jeremiah says God is going to do something in which the law will be written within the heart. And that's why uh, this covenant in Jeremiah 31 is often paired with what you read in Ezekiel 36 about us being given a, a new heart and a new spirit. There'll be a new presence of God within us to convey to us, to persuade to us, to to. Uh, help us to embrace and believe and love in this law that he's given to us, the law that leads to life. That's the first characteristic of that covenant. The second is that God would choose to be with us, that we would not simply be his lackey, we would not be his valet or his butler, we would be his family. He would be our God, we would be his people. He would renew that sense of our belongingness to him. Third, uh, Jeremiah is imagining a day in which there would be no distinction about those who would know him. You don't have to be the Phi Beta Kappa of your crowd in order to understand the Lord. No one would have to ask or others of the, of the learned or the unlearned. Everybody would understand him. Everyone would know him. But fourthly, this, this covenant would be complete, would be fulfilled when God would forgive their sin. When he would look upon their sin no more. Jesus is invoking that sense of covenant, because he himself is saying, I'm the fulfillment of it. I'm the one who has come to reflect that. 
Why should you care? Why does that matter? What does it, what, of what significance is it for you to know that the nature of Jesus' love for us comes in the form of a promise? I'll tell you, in the New Testament, in the Gospels in particular, there are some passages that only show up in one Gospel. Uh, there are some passages that show up in two or in three Gospels. And there are a few passages that show up in all four. And obviously, in all four Gospels, you'll have the crucifixion and the resurrection. You can be sure of that. And in all four Gospels, you're going to have some reconstruction of the meal of the room where it happened. But also, in all four Gospels, you're going to find one story prominently explained and never glossed over. And that's Peter's denial. When given the opportunity to speak for Jesus, to speak well of Jesus on three separate occasions in short order, he says, I don't know who you're talking about. Jesus, Jesus who? I know why this promise that Jesus is making about the nature of his love would matter to Peter. Because what it meant to Peter is, even when he had failed his Lord, Jesus would not be deterred. His love would not be squelched, even by Peter's frailty. And friends, that's why it matters to us that the nature of his love comes in the form of a promise. Because that love will not be squelched in the middle of our frailty or of our folly or of our faithlessness. If that's the nature of his love, then it is a love that will not end. And that's why the very idea of a covenant, as it's been said, is the idea of God locking himself to us, refusing to let us go. That's good news. That's new. And it's without condition. But as far as promises go, he makes a promise. We make promises. People make promises to us. But on, on what basis do we trust the promise? Well, that gets us to the, to the second thing that we learn about the love of Christ in this moment, at this meal, in the room where it happened. We're going to learn about the depth of that love. And I want to set that idea up by, by talking about two kinds of people at the risk of an oversimplification. There's one kind of person, and, and both of these people, it kind of depends on your temperament and your story and your background and your experiences and, and maybe just how you process the world. But there's, there's one kind of person who is pretty impressed with themselves. They, they think they're a pretty decent guy. They're, they're actually kind of a big deal in the back of their mind, whether they ever express it or not. And maybe they're not cocky, at least not outwardly. They're, they're pretty sure of themselves. And, and that kind of temperament reflects in certain ways such that they are so impressed with themselves that maybe they don't think they, they really make too many mistakes. And, and if anybody else makes, if anybody makes some mistakes, it's going to be somebody else before they consider themselves. That's, that's one kind of person. Another kind of person maybe is, is not so self-assured, um, probably maybe even a little more timid, a little more withdrawn, you know, think Eeyore, maybe kind of a wintry spirit to them, um, not very confident. And maybe, maybe think they have nothing to offer. Maybe they feel a little worthless. Maybe, maybe meaning feels like something rather elusive for them. Those are two kinds of people. And, and you know, those kinds of, those kinds of um, uh, personalities, you can vacillate between the two of them. You, you can sometimes be, be uh, so self-assured that you're cocky. Or, or sometimes you can be so self-abasing that you're pathetic. And, and you kind of wander back and forth between either kind of pole. Either of those sensibilities, the depth of Jesus' love has something to speak to both. Because if we replay the tape here and we remind ourselves that when Jesus says, this cup is the covenant 
in my blood. Why, he's out to say something that is entirely new that no one had yet heard. We said that the fourth characteristic of, of Jeremiah's anticipation of a new covenant was that there would be a forgiveness. And when you're talking about forgiveness, from an Old Testament perspective, you're talking about sacrifice. And when you're talking about sacrifice, you're talking about the shedding of blood. And as the author of Hebrews says, without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. And with Jesus there at the meal, holding up the cup, he is there to say that this covenant is in his blood. And that's new. Not just that there would be a sacrifice for sin, and it would be by blood, but that that sacrifice would be in his own blood, and that sacrifice would be once for all. I want to show you a scene from a film that was filmed not too far from here. Maybe you've seen it. It's Last of the Mohicans, a famous novel. It takes place during the French-Indian War. It, uh, it deals with uh, a British officer named Major Hayward and uh, two daughters of another British general. And they are tasked with being escorted to the British fort. And they are being escorted by one of the last Mohicans, played by Daniel Day-Lewis. But in this scene, the British officer, Major Hayward, who has a love for one of these daughters, and that love is unrequited, he and the two daughters have been captured by the Huron. And in this scene, one of the last Mohicans, played by Daniel Day-Lewis, has come to plead for their lives. And here's how that moment shakes out. I'm Nathaniel of the Yengeese. Hawkeye, adopted son of Chingachgook of the Mohican people. Let the children of the dead Monroe and the Yengeese officer go free. This belt, which is a record of the days of my father's people, speaks for my truth. I am the Long Caribbean! My death is a great honor to the Huron! Take me! Did you tell him? Yes. Yeah, she's right, don't I? The scene has its own poignancy to it, but, but what adds or what compounds to the poignancy of it is that to this point, Major Hayward has, has thought very ill of, of the last of the Mohicans, and, and he is, in being spurned by Cora, he is uh, somewhat like the jilted lover and, and embittered toward that, and yet he is the one who gives himself to the fullest extent as a deliverance for all them three. That is the depth of his regard. And that 
is what we're meant to feel when we hear Jesus saying to his disciples and to us, this is the new covenant in my blood. Look, when it comes to you or I forgiving another, it doesn't really require shedding of blood, not that I'm aware of, but any kind of forgiveness always requires some kind of sacrifice. You have to die to something that you might otherwise want. You have to give up that which you might hold to in order to give them a chance to be in fellowship with you again. That's the nature of forgiveness. And it always comes at a cost. And what Jesus is out to tell us, to express to us the depth of his love as the extent to which he has gone to make we, who are essentially his enemies, his friends. So how does the depth of his love communicate to those, those two kinds of personalities I talked about? If you're, if you're the first kind in which you are rather impressed with yourself and kind of you think of yourself as, you know, pretty big deal and you think that you would never uh, do anything to warrant the kind of stark and severe kind of sacrifice that Jesus is out to provide for us to communicate the depth of his love, he is here to tell us, think again. That the depth of his love that is demonstrated by his blood is not something that merely communicates that he is nice. It communicates to us that it was necessary. That he had to do what he did in order to rescue us from who we are in our deepest selves. And though, therefore, for those of us that are a little bit too self-assured, we need to be humbled in this moment. But at the same time, those who are perhaps uh, far less uh, impressed with themselves and perhaps feel themselves not worthy of that kind of love, oh, if only we could meditate on what he has done and the depth of that love for just a few minutes to realize that that love for us is real, that mercy is true, and it has nothing to do with our worth. It has everything to do with his love for us. And that depth is so true, and it speaks to that, and therefore it, it lifts us from our despair. It humbles us as it rescues us. Now, look, to say that we are forgiven of God in Christ, it is not meant to be a pretext for us to avoid ever seeking forgiveness from others whom we've harmed. If anything, his forgiveness sets the stage and provides us the context and the courage and the humility, in fact, to own what we've done and to seek forgiveness from those for whom we properly do so. It is not an, op an opportunity or it's not a warrant to avoid those things. It is actually a compulsion to walk into it. So the depth of his love, at the same time that it encourages us, it humbles us unto that end. That is the depth of his love. But how shall I put this? Even in that, it is not the most important thing that he means to tell us about this love. Sure, it has an essence that's on the basis of a promise. And yes, it has a depth that has no limit uh, to the love that he might show for us by shedding his own blood. But thirdly, there's a greater goal to this. There's a greater goal to this love than even our forgiveness. And, and I, I take that from, from one word he uses twice somewhere in this passage. And it's the word until. And in both senses, he is alluding to a future. There at the Passover, in verse 16, he says, I will not eat this Passover meal again until it is fulfilled in the kingdom. And there in two verses later, he says, I will not drink of the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God comes. From the very outset of Jesus' ministry, his first words were, repent. The kingdom of God is near, and that kingdom comes in himself. 
the purposes of God enacted through the power of God, through the presence of God who is in Jesus. That's the kingdom, and that kingdom will be without end. But Jesus is saying he will not share of the Passover meal, he will not drink of the fruit of the vine until all is accomplished in that kingdom. And so everything, the goal of his love, has something further in view, something in the future, that that which he has begun, he will come to complete. And at the completion of what he has to do, there will be a celebration. A celebration like no other. As Paul puts it somewhere else in Philippians chapter 1, he who began a good work in you will carry it on to completion until the day of Christ Jesus. No matter how much we might revel in the, the substance of Jesus' love, the nature of it, or, or in the depths to which he goes to demonstrate it, it, that is still nothing compared to the goal of that love. And that is to see the fullness of what he intends by beginning with forgiveness, but then shedding abroad all of what his goodness is throughout the entirety of the world for all time and for all places. And we get a glimpse of that here. And until then, what we can do is look forward to that day while still catching glimpses of it, while still getting a taste of what is to be in, in experienced and enjoyed in full in time. I read a really wonderful poem this week by a poet named R.S. Thomas. He said this, it's called The Kingdom. He wrote this, It's a long way off, but inside it, there are quite different things going on. Festivals in which the poor man is king and the consumptive is healed. Mirrors in which the blind look at themselves and love looks at them back. And industry is for mending the bent bones and the minds fractured by life. It's a long way off, but to get there takes no time, and admission is free if you purge yourself of desire and present yourself with your need only and the simple offering of your faith, green as a leaf." You get into the kingdom by an admission that is paid for by him. And yet, by inhabiting that kingdom, now you get a glimpse of what it will be in full later. And you get to participate in that kingdom even in its smallest ways, in its, in its stammering ways, in its stuttering ways. But that is the goal of his love. That's where things are headed. That is a day of anticipation. Look, if if you're kind of a melancholy soul like mine, then, you know, when, when the Christmas season comes, uh, you're not sure which is better, um, the day of Christmas or the anticipation of it, the building up of it. And, you know, from my point of view, as pathetic as it may be, I think the anticipation of it is, in my mind, better than the day because the day can never match the hype. And, and the day ends. And, and the day, metaphorically speaking, has to go back in the box. So in that sense, I'd rather be in the waiting period before than on the day of. But when it comes to the goal of his love in the kingdom that will be without end, then that day will have to be better than the buildup. That day will have to be better than any anticipation or looking forward that we have to it. Because if it is built on the resurrection, then it has to be better than even the nature of that love or the depth of it. Because we're going to finally see that love in its fullness. That day will be best. That day, we get to look forward to and yet catch a taste of it now. Now, that leads us with one last question and the last thing we learned from this passage and it is this. Look, he may be in this meal communicating to us both the nature of his love and the depth of it and its goal. 
But here in a world that is half weary and half rejoicing, how do we experience it? In what way can we know it uh, apart from just reading it and uh, hearing about it in a sermon? That's why he's given us a meal. He's told us to take and eat and to do this as often as we will in remembrance of him. He's called us to a table and in our tradition, it's a good idea that we think to always remind everyone at least seven days in advance that we'll be partaking of the table. And, and on this day, you have your seven-day notice. Next week on the 17th, we will, weather permitting, share in the table again. And even as I share with you, what does it mean to come to this table that we might experience the nature, the depth, and the goal of this love? There's probably two questions that you bring to this discussion, and one is this. Why haven't we been doing this virtually? Why haven't we been sharing the meal kind of through this online setting? Why has it only been something that we've done in an in-person setting? And then also, secondly, some of you who have children go, what about our kids? How should we think about that? Let me, let me see if I can answer both of those questions at the same time that I'm trying to ex explain to you what does it mean to experience his love at the table. Jesus tells us to do this as often as we will and to do so in remembrance of him. And Paul gives us a little bit more explanation of what it means to eat and drink worthily of that table. And I think it comes down to three things, which I think is the takeaway from this sermon. If you would eat of this table well, then you must first look in. Paul says we must examine ourselves before we come to the table. And that's in part why we say that the table is for those who have come to an understanding of who Jesus is. And that's why we withhold our children from it because we want them to be able to come with understanding and confidence about what the table means. We want them to be able to say that they believe that Jesus is for them and that they are in need of him. And those who believe that, then that table is for them. And so because examination is crucial to partaking of it well, it is something we believe it is for those who have come to an understanding of saving faith in him. The first thing you have to do is you have to look in, to examine yourself, to reflect, to confess, to acknowledge what is wrong and your need of him. But the second thing you have to do is look at him, to look up. And I might suggest to you, as I might suggest to myself, that every time henceforth in which you participate in the supper, there ought to be at least three things that you're thinking about in order to do so in remembrance of him. And they all come out of the points of this sermon. That as you hold the bread and the wine in your hand and you're reflecting upon what he did, when Jesus, when Paul says we must discern the body, I think in part he means this, that you must believe that this is a promise without end of a love without limit, anticipating a feast without equal. If each time you come to the table, you remember those things. You are discerning the body. You are remembering him as he is worthy of being remembered. That it is a promise without end of a love without limit, anticipating a feast without equal. That is what it means to discern the body, him who is our body. But Paul is purposely ambiguous there. And he's not just saying we have to look at him. He's also telling us to look around and everybody else that you might be with on a given day when we gather. And this, this is why we only are serving communion in an in-person setting. It's not to exclude. It's not to be difficult. It's not to be tight. It's, 
It's because we believe our understanding of this meal, that it is a reflection and a demonstration of the fact that those who believe also belong. And we belong to each other. And so might, I might say to you, as I say to myself, that every time that we partake of this meal, when we are gathered together, when we are gathered together, that we would look around at one another and know that insofar as we believe the Lord and with him we have to do, we also belong to all of those who share in that same baptism and to come to him with that same need and to believe, in fact, that in that bread and in that wine we are seeing a promise without end, with a love without limit, anticipating a feast without equal. Let me end this way. There was a wonderful article about Thomas Jefferson written in the New Yorker last week. And it's entitled, What Thomas Jefferson Could Never Understand About Jesus. If you know Thomas Jefferson's story, then you know that he took a New Testament and literally cut out all the parts that had anything to do with the supernatural, anything that had to do with miracles, anything that had to do with the cross or the resurrection, anything that had to do with something wonderful. And instead, he just retained the parts about his ethics and about his wisdom. And in this essay, he compares Thomas Jefferson's view of Jesus with that of the black theologian Howard Thurman. He was a theologian of the 20th century. And at the end of this article, the author makes a comparison between Thomas Jefferson and Howard Thurman when he says this. Jefferson's Bible ends before the resurrection with Jesus crucified by the Roman occupiers as the Gospels tells us he was. Jefferson's austere editing turns the killing almost into an afterthought, a desiccated reiteration of Socrates' final encounter with Hemlock. For Thurman, the crucifixion was an emphatic lesson in creative weakness. By sticking out his neck and accepting the full implications of his own vulnerability, Christ had radically identified with the worst off. Those societal castoffs who would never get a break now had a savior and a champion and a model. This for Thurman is as great a teaching as anything that Jesus merely said. Where death for Jefferson's Jesus is an ending, for Thurman's it is a necessary precondition, just a start. Beloved, in the room where it happened in 1790, there was a transaction that ended up being a compromise between two different factions. But in the room where it happened, where Jesus came to serve this meal, that was a unilateral promise and decision on his part to die for us, to save a wretch like us, and in doing so then to free us to love those whom this world might otherwise overlook or cast off because we ourselves would be in the same boat apart from the grace of the Lord Jesus. That is why we come to this table as often as we can, that we might experience a love that has a nature and a depth and a goal. Come when you can. Come as often as you can. In the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Amen.